<coughs> whether we like it or not, we're called to live in this present age. The Apostle Paul wrote this second letter to Timothy around the mid-60s. No, not the 1960s, although it could well have been when we look at what Paul has to say, but 1900 years earlier, around AD 64, 65. And it was during Paul's second term in prison in Rome. And it is believed that Paul was martyred during the reign of Nero, which ended in AD 68. And it was a time of severe persecution for the church across the Roman world. Many had abandoned him and others were involved in other work. Paul knew his departure was imminent. If you like, he was on the equivalent of death row, but wanted to use his remaining time to continue the Lord's work. If you look at towards the end of chapter 4, you will see where he asks for his scrolls and other things so that he continue uh, his work, his ministry. Paul's letters to Timothy and also the uh, letter to Titus and Philemon are known as pastoral epistles, pastoral letters, in that they were written to individual friends of Paul rather than to churches. They are personal and yet still have much to say to us as individuals and also as a church in this present age. I can't help wondering or thinking what would we have written to someone like Timothy in the same circumstances. Paul's opening remark in verse 1 is a sobering one. It is not a maybe or a perhaps or could be. It's definite. It's, if you like, mark my words. Be sure of this. Take notice. When Paul says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. By the last days, Paul is referring to is the time between the resurrection of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his return. It is the age in which Paul lived and it is also the age in which we live. It is in the present. It is now. Paul says there will be terrible times, indicating that the situation will fluctuate. Times of opposition and persecution will vary in intensity. Not just a constant downhill slide, but neither will there be, uh, before the return of Christ, the utopia that some religious leaders and politicians promise. It is an honest, straightforward assessment of how it is and how it will continue to be. He doesn't want Timothy to be under any misapprehension. Opposition to the gospel will continue. Therefore, believers will continue to face opposition, hostility, and even at times severe persecution. This is how it has been and how it will continue to be until Christ's return. 
And of course, when Christ returns, every knee will bow before him and acknowledge him as Lord. Paul continues in verses 2 to 5, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Verses 1 to 4 describe society. In fact, we are all described here to some degree. It is our sinful nature. We are selfish, greedy, the list goes on. We don't need to spell it out. We are honest with ourselves. We know what we are. However, when we get to verse 5, we realise that Paul is not just speaking about the pagan, unbelieving world that surrounded him and also surrounds us. He's referring to people having a form of godliness but denying its power. He's talking about those false teachers in the church. Teachers whose lives fail to live up to the claims that they make, whose lives do not reflect the gospel. And the danger of false teaching can never be overstated. It is the greatest threat to the health of the church. It has been over the last 2,000 years and will continue to be so. Verse 5 is illustrated, if we think about it, about the recent debates that we hear and we see about sexuality, with the love of God is mentioned time again and again. We hear terms of like acceptance, but we don't hear about repentance and sanctification. We do not hear about the power of the gospel to transform lives. To talk about sin has become totally unacceptable. To tell people only that God loves them and without calling them to repent and believe in what Christ has done for them on the cross is only to tell half-truths. As we heard this morning, we cannot ignore God's wrath. We cannot ignore his righteous anger. The gospel is not believe in God and live as you please. It is come to Christ and live for him, to be sanctified by the Spirit. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. To mislead people regarding the truth of the gospel is diabolical. It is hindering them from coming to the truth. No wonder Paul says, have nothing to do with such people. From this we know that he's not talking about unbelievers because in chapter 4 and verse 5 he exhorts Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Also we read... Uh, Paul readily mixed with unbelievers and we see in the Acts of the Apostles many examples of this. How he met with those on Mars Hill who were worshipping 
various shrines and pointed them to the living God. How else can we make the gospel known? But he is referring to those who claim to believe but do not teach the truth. The false teachers do not give them any credence. False teachers are those who either add or detract from the gospel. Much of Paul's letter to uh, the Galatians is to counter those who said, you must believe the gospel, but also become Jewish and obey the Jewish laws. In other words, they are saying that the gospel of grace on its own is not enough. Just as those who today preach universal acceptance are also distorting the truth. In verses 6 to 9, Paul continues to elaborate upon the character of those false teachers and those who accept it. The false teaching, that is. It is not the de a definitive description of false teachers and false teaching, but a characterization. They are the kind of people, people who will take advantage of those who have a particular need. In this instance, Paul uses an example of people burdened with sin and its desires. Perhaps we could use the examples of the prosperity gospel, where its proponents fly around the world in private jets while taking money from those who can least afford it, offering them a prosperity, but offering them no hope in the gospel at all. And when perhaps that prosperity doesn't come, of course, it's their fault because they don't have enough faith. Or we can think of those who want to be told that their immoral lifestyles are okay. They are seeking but are unable to come to the truth because those leading them are not in possession of it. The blind are leading the blind. These teachers oppose the truth. The latest phrase used to mock us, those who would uh, stand on orthodox Christian beliefs, among many other terms I might use, when we oppose their teaching, is to say that we are the wrong side of history. If we are not prepared to accept the truths of the gospel regarding sin and judgment and God's wrath, as well as God's love and his holiness, we cannot lead people into the truth. Our interpretation will be corrupted by our sinful nature and our sinful desires. Paul cites two people that are not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, Jans and Jambres, who oppose Moses. These appear in other Hebrew writings and it is believed that they are the magicians in Pharaoh's court who oppose uh, Moses, if you look in uh, Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. They were frauds. They opposed the truth. And Paul is confident that ultimately all those who oppose the truth and all those who uh, teach false doctrine, that their folly will become evident. However, they can cause damage, misleading people by distorting the truth. So we have a picture of life in the modern world as we wait for the Lord's return. Don Carson asks the question, in his comments on this passage, he asks the question, 
What must we do about it? What must we do about it? We all have a responsibility when it comes to these things. He makes the following suggestions based on the remaining verses of our passage. The first suggestion is to resolve to follow the best mentors. In verses 10 to 11, Paul unashamedly reminds Timothy that his life, that is the life of Paul, if you like, is an open book. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, suffering, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, their persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Remembering that we are all sinners, saved by grace, and not looking to blindly follow anyone or elevate men into positions and to, if you like, almost begin to, to worship them, remembering that they are, are sinners as we are. We should look at the lives of those who we would seek to have teach us and guide us to see that they reflect the gospel as well as preaching the gospel. They should be living out the gospel. And we're living in an age of celebrity, aren't we? And this sadly is reflected also in, in religion. We have constantly a stream of celebrity vicars on our TV screens. And just over a year ago, we had an American bishop saying a few of right-sounding things and people were falling over themselves, even though he should never have been allowed in the pulpit. If we do not become intentional about choosing the best mentors, that is leaders, teachers and preachers, we will inevitably choose poor ones. I confess to perhaps being overcautious and when someone pops up as the latest thing, I look into their background to find out what they are and what they believe and that perhaps is easier in this day and age than it has been in previous ones. Those we choose to mentor us, to teach us and to lead us should not always be telling us the things we want to hear. Sometimes they will tell us the things we don't want to hear. The second is that we should be realistic about the world. In verses 12 to 13, again, uh, Paul, similar to the beginning of the chapter, tells it like it is. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy and he's saying it to us this evening, do not expect an easy time as a follower of Christ. Then you will not be disappointed. Those who offer if you like, I come to Christ and everything will be wonderful and rosy and you'll have no problems, are not telling the truth. If we come to Christ, people will oppose us. We will not have an easy time. Of course, we know that 
when we see the Lord Jesus Christ in it, as who he is, and when we recognise what he has done for us upon the cross, when we recognise what we are as sinners, we know that anything that we do and all that we face for him is worthwhile. But do not be deceived, as the Apostle Paul reminded Timothy. Paul states as a fact that those who seek to live a godly life will face opposition. Being a Christian will not make you the most popular person in the office or even in the home, even though you may be the kindest, most understanding, compassionate, hard-working member of the team, your worldview will alienate you. We are seeing this more and more in our present society. We are called extremists and biggests at best. You can lose your job for quoting the Bible or holding a biblical view. Yet Paul says at the same time, evildoers and imposters, false teachers, will go from bad to worse. He's not saying that each generation will be worse than the one before, but that each and every generation, evil people will continue to spiral down into their hopeless corruption. We should not be surprised by this, other, <coughs> other than the intervention of God by his grace this is what sin does to a person and also does to a society. Have our liberal attitudes of the past century led to a better society? All we see is confusion and contradiction because there is no foundation. Society that isn't built upon God and his word is built on sand. It does not have a firm foundation. The third point that uh, Don Carson makes is that we should rely upon the Bible. And in verses 14 to 17, he reminds uh, Timothy of this. With so many voices bombarding us every minute of every day, trying to mould our thinking and our world view, what do we use as a foundation? What is truth? Paul's answer to Timothy is, but as for you, continuing what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know that those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. <coughs> All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The secularist worldview is profoundly alien to the Christian. Do not be deceived by the platitudes that it hides behind, that may make it seem similar or compatible. Paul exhorts Timothy to continue in what he has learned and been convinced of. Again, he reminds him of those who mentored him, even from a child. In chapter 1 and verse 5 of 2 Timothy, Paul writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois 
and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. I would say this evening to all of you who have had Christian parents or grandparents, do you fully realise the great privilege that you have? Do not squander it. Do not despise the grace that God has bestowed upon you. You cannot inherit their faith, but it is a privilege to be brought up in the truth and to have the foundation of a Christian family. Paul is not saying that knowing the Bible itself will save you. You could learn it all by heart, but that itself would not save you. Salvation only comes through faith in Christ. However, all of the Bible points towards the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is the Bible that we base our lives upon, not the latest cultural trend. Paul makes a statement that some so-called church leaders do not or cannot adhere to. He says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I can remember a comment that was made to me in my younger days when um, studying to be a a local preacher um, about the word of God. From when, from stating, as I had, that if you like, the Bible is the Word of God, that it is God-breathed, to being told that the Bible contained the Word of God. And that may not sound very different, but of course there is a subtle difference because those who adhere to such statements, it means that certain parts of it they can then disregard without exception all scripture is God breathed when what is written conflicts with how we want to live or what we would like to believe the Bible must take precedence because the Bible is the word of God it alone has the authority in all areas of our lives so it is what it is what we use for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Whatever we believe, unless it is supported by biblical teaching, frankly is irrelevant. We have many people say, oh believe this or that. We hear it very often in the media where some presenter or someone will say to a a, a Christian apologist, oh I believe this, with no foundation for what they believe. Unless what we believe is grounded in the truth of God's word, it is meaningless. It's like believing in unicorns. It's fairly pointless. We should be on our guard because the evil one still asks the same question. The same question as he asked to, to Eve in the garden. That we hear people referring to God's word and they ask this question. 
Well, did God really say? Does the Bible really say that? Does the Bible really mean that? Often, nowadays, the traditional interpretation of the Bible is being called into question by so-called liberal theologians. We all know that at times we do need to be rebuked and we all need to be corrected because we all fall. We are, as we have said many times before, sinful men and women, saved by grace, but still we have our sinful nature. And God's word does that. It's like a double-edged sword, the way that it cuts into our heart, if you like, metaphorically, of course. It opens it up. The Bible so often shows us what we are really like. It shows us when we are in error. It shows us what our lives are really like. It chastises us. And none of us like to be uh, chastised. It trains us in right living. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 8 tells us, if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, you are not legitimate. You are not true sons and daughters at all. If we are looking at the word of God and it never touches our hearts, and we never feel that pang of chastisement and realise that we're wrong, if God never talks to us or leads us in that way, either from our private reading or from the preaching that we hear, then we should question, as the writer to the Hebrews, if we're not disciplined, being disciplined, if it's not making a difference in our lives and how we live, then perhaps we are not true children of God at all. In all of our teaching and our training, the Bible must be preeminent. Otherwise, God's people cannot be equipped for God's work. <coughs> Finally, um, Finally, the, proclaim the word. The final word of Paul to Timothy is proclaim the word. Paul charges Timothy to preach the word. He says in the beginning of chapter 4, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather round them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you... Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. We may not all be called to 
publicly preach and teach the word of God. We are, however, all called to support those who are. And we are all called to live out the gospel in our daily lives. The charge to Timothy from Paul is a serious one. It is not given as an alternative. It's not a nice suggestion. It's not a bit of, if you like, uh, fatherly advice. Uh, it's not some form of other ministry. He gives Timothy this calling. He charges him before the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the word. This calling to Timothy is to be his priority over all things. Paul is coming to the end of his earthly ministry and he knows it. And he's aware of three, these three facts as he contemplates, if you like, coming to the end of the ministry and coming to the end of his life. One is the reality of judgment. The other, the return of Christ and the establishing of his kingdom. These three realities that were, if you like, shaping the vision that Paul had should also fill our vision and they should shape our priorities also. The urgency of the call to people to repent and to turn to Christ is heightened if we contemplate the coming of Christ as judge. When he establishes his kingdom, there will be no more opportunity. In Matthew 24, Jesus speaks of two men in a field. One is taken and the other left. And also two women grinding corn. One is taken and the other left. Christ's return is closer now than when Paul wrote this letter. The urgency of the gospel is greater now than it was yesterday or the year ago. We see the complete ministry here in these words of the word of God. In verse 2 we have the urgency. Be ready. Be ready. Not just when perhaps... It seems good or the right time when God is working in perhaps extraordinary ways and things are going well. But be faithful even in the days of small things. When we read the biographies of missionaries, we often see that they faithfully laboured for many years before seeing any fruit. Always be ready, Paul is saying to Timothy and Paul is saying to us also, to make God's word known. We also see how God's, how the, sorry, we also see how the word is used within the church. And this word is complementary. It's not just one part of what we do. To correct, rebuke and encourage. These three must go hand in hand in the building up of the church. To rebuke and to correct without encouragement, is harsh and cold and unloving. However, we cannot just encourage when correction and rebuke are required. We cannot let people continue in error. The three are complementary. We need great patience and careful instruction in the word. 
And to this end, we should pray for our elders and the task that they have in instructing and correcting and leading us and encourage us. We all like the encouragement, but we're not so often very keen on the other parts, and yet they are all very necessary. The reason Paul reminds Timothy of this is that he knows that so often people, and include, this includes people within the church, only want to hear what suits them, what their itching ears want to hear. We see evidence of this in the church today, people who only want to hear about God's love and acceptance, but not about sin and repentance. The reason is that they want to continue their sinful lifestyles. How often do you hear clergy talking much of God's love and but little of how he demonstrated that love upon the cross? Much of his love, but little of his holiness. Much of being accepted, but not that we are only acceptable to him through Christ's death upon the cross and by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. To mention sin is considered hate speech. If you want an example of that in our society, look how Tim Farron, the, leader, the ex-leader of the Liberal Democrats, was pressured before the election just on one point, just on one point of, of whether to say that certain activity was sin. Not his political views. His political views were almost sidelined. It was that one point. We see this same attitude regarding abortion and many other modern day issues. How can we claim to love people if we do not show them the way to God? If we do not tell them that Christ died for them and call them to repentance and faith in Christ? How can we say we love people if we ignore their eternal destiny? Paul, at the end of this charge, tells Timothy to keep his head be of sound mind and judgment. Don't get carried along with the latest trend. He knows that because of this, Timothy will have to endure hardship, as he reminded him in verse 12 of chapter 3. As well as fulfilling his work as a pastor of God's flock, he charges Timothy also to continue to do the work of an evangelist. Continue to seek to offer the word of life to those who are lost. If the message of the church is not centred on the gospel, upon what Christ has done upon the cross, upon his death and his resurrection and his return, it has no more relevance than any other philosophy. It is meaningless, it is vanity. The principles that Paul outlines here are applicable to all believers. To have a realistic view of our society. Choosing our mentors and teachers well. And having complete confidence, not only to build our lives upon the word of God, but also to proclaim it.
Shall we close by standing to sing, let your word go forth among the nations. <laughs>